Hi, and welcome to the Writers' Forum on WRBH. I'm David Benedetto, and today I'm happy to welcome local author C.W. Cannon to the show to talk about his writing and latest novel, French Quarter Beautification Project, which was published recently by Lavender Inc. How are you doing today? Doing great. How are you? I'm good. Glad you can come on in. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Well, to kind of start us off, um, how did this novel kind of come to fruition? Well, this novel is kind of a, a was a long time brewing because it's actually the first one I started writing. Um, and uh, it's set in the 1980s, but that's not because I was trying to go back and remember a former time so much. <laughs> that's when I started writing it. Yeah. Uh, and then I put it away and, and, and wrote other things and did other stuff for a while, and uh, but eventually returned to it over a period of 20 years or something. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I started writing it a long time ago and it's, I guess, like a lot of young writers, it's based on my own, uh, youth experiences. It's based on when I worked at this restaurant called Anything Goes, um, in the French Quarter back when I was in high school. Interesting. And that's, that was the germ of it. All right. And, you know, like 1986 New Orleans is a very different New Orleans than the one we have today. Uh, yes. How, how would you kind of describe it for people that weren't here or not as quite familiar with that kind of life? Well, you know, I would say that the quarter and 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 also Maroney, Bywater, all the, the downtown neighborhoods uh, were less, um, less expensive. Um, the quarter was a lot more run down. Uh, there was still affordable housing there. Uh, it was more truly bohemian yeah. um, than it is today, uh, and it was also sleazier. I mean, there were uh, there was street prostitution and things like that that are a little bit more uh, discreet today. Yeah. Um, and Bourbon Street was also a lot sleazier. Um, it was before Larry Flint's uh, Hustler Club and those kinds of glitzier. Um, uh, offerings. Uh, so yeah, a little bit more gritty. Um, I, I guess that would basically be the difference. Yeah, I know. I, I get that. And it's kind of cool because this book kind of like is in that in-between mm-hmm. uh, period where they're transitioning and trying to make it like and before kind of like the tourist economy really took off. That's right. I mean, you'll notice in it, it's the big thing that's going on is the is the reconstruction of the sidewalks. And that's based on, it's actually based more on 1983. I mean, I put 1986 in there. Um, but, uh, I actually am remembering 83 because that's when they redid the sidewalks under Dutch Morial's, uh, uh, project to redo the sidewalks and yeah. they, they put down slate sidewalks, a little bit more old fashioned looking. I kind of poke fun at that in there. <laughs> um, and, uh, so that's kind of what I was thinking of. That's why it really was a situation where the streets were all ripped up. And, um, so that's based somewhat on reality for at least one summer. It probably went on a little longer than that, but I remember one summer in particular that it was really like that. Yeah, it feels like it's still going on a little bit. Doesn't well, it? it you know it's constantly it's constantly going <laughs> on. You know the constant rebuilding. There's that Bywater bumper sticker that says uh, Bywater, a work in progress since 1803. Yeah, <laughs> um, and uh, of course our homes are, are like that. I uh, own an old home uh, in the old neighborhood um, back where I grew up. Uh, it's the the lower end of Marigny. Um and. Uh, you know, you really do have to constantly be fixing it. I mean, it would just fall apart. It need they need maintenance. Um, so maybe the city in general needs that subsidence or whatever. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, no, of course, of course. Um, you follow a couple of different or a few different characters throughout this, switching yes. points of view. 
a bit. Uh, one of those characters is Buck, who you kind of start mm-hmm. the novel with, right. uh, which I, I kind of love his perspective and his voice kind of mm-hmm. going in. Uh, tell me kind of like the inspiration for, for Buck and kind of how you well, decided. He's, yeah. he's kind of based on me. I yeah. mean, I was uh, writing, I was really into composition at that time, writing music. Um, ended up going to college for that. I was at, at NOCA at the time oh. uh, doing composition and other things. Uh, ended up going to Northwestern University in Chicago and Evanston uh, for composition wow. at the music school. Um, ended up switching and didn't end up finally with a composition major. But uh, so, you know, he's a, a rough version of me with some alterations. Yeah, I can yeah, see, obviously. At that age, a long time ago. Today you wouldn't <laughs> see it. But uh, I make him a little older than I was um, because I was, you know, 16, 17. Uh, I think I have him in his early 20s or something. Yeah. Did you have fun writing this book? It seems like you did. Yeah, I did. Um, it was very fun. Of course, the the narrator is is the god Dionysus. Yeah, you know, so he is some a figure that I'm very interested in. Ever since I read Nietzsche's uh, Birth of Tragedy, where he talks about the spirit of Dionysus, especially in relation to to Apollonian qualities. Yeah. And, um. So, um, you know, so I'm really into that, and uh, so I had a lot of fun writing it. Uh, in a way, it's my most personal book. I mean, I've got another novel coming out, and with that one, I will have written four of them. Um, but this is the one that is the most kind of about my own personal obsessions, kind of. Yeah, I can, yeah. I can see that. I, I love that that remove that you have that that narrator right there. Um, you're always able to like say like he's doing this, but also like how you're kind of moving within the perspectives right there. I think right. it's really fascinating. It makes it omniscient in the original sense, which yeah. is a godlike voice. This actually is a god. Yes. <laughs> um, so he does go inside all the different characters' heads that he wants to. Not everyone, um, but uh, so that makes it very fun how he can zip around uh, into different characters' minds, even very minor ones, as you notice, uh, for just a second, and then back out into somebody else's point of view. Um, yeah, I really uh, enjoyed that part of it too. Of course, it was kind of hard as well, especially when we talk about that character book, because revising it in the past, within the past 10 years or so was tricky because I'm not a teen anymore. I'm not an early 20, 20 something man anymore. Um, and that character is, and it became, uh, kind of tricky to let this book be what it is and not, you know, come in there with my older, you know, dad self and mess it up. So I had to try to kind of keep the vision original to what I intended back, you know, almost 30 years ago at this point. That's interesting because I know like other writers would come in and be like, oh, no, we've got to cut this. We've got to like, you know, whittle this down because this is too young. This is too youthful in certain ways. It is. It is very much like that. And it's uh, also it sort of defies editing because it's this big, long uh, Dionysian excessive uh, dream kind of thing, you know, yeah. it just it just never stops. It's constantly going. Uh, so if I were to try to make it more uh, neatly crafted and structured in a more uh, deliberate way, yeah. that would also spoil the essence of what this book is. You yeah, know, it seems like a lot of the exercise of this book, like I, I'd be reading it to myself and I'd be like, well, I'll find a stopping point so I can go get dinner right now. It's like, no, I, I got to keep going, you know, it's like it's, it is a nonstop party and the way that the sentences kind of like run into each other mm-hmm. and like the signifiers that you use for certain characters. Mm-hmm. Like yes. I, I love, uh, again, Buck because mm-hmm. of how he uses his classical music knowledge in order right. to like uh, experience the world around him. Yes. You know, it's really yes. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Right. 
Well, um, to kind of switch again, mm -hmm. uh, um, composition, what, what got you to not uh, further yourself in composition? Why didn't I do that? Uh, I don't know. There's a couple of reasons. Uh, for one thing, I didn't have the chops on an instrument to really be competitive in the performance world. I played trumpet. That was my original instrument at NOCA. Yeah. And then while at NOCA, I switched to voice because my voice was uh, better or whatever. It was more, it was, it was, it had more promise than my horn. Um, and that was uh, good enough to get into Northwestern and started the opera program there. Um, but even that, I just wasn't that inspired to do. And then I had a lot of difficulty getting my works performed. Yeah. Um, it's very hard to find a bassoon player and a harpist and, uh, if, if you don't have money, yeah, um, people need to get paid. Um, and uh, I've got orchestral works lying around that no one will ever hear, and it's depressing. Um, and that kind of informed the what's going on in that book, too. Yeah, no, I you, know, you write this music, it's sitting in a box, no one will ever hear it. Yeah. Um, and it's, uh, it's just so ethereal and really, it doesn't, in a way, it doesn't really exist at all, yeah. except in my head. And on paper, these little scratching, you know, pencil marks on paper, this was, I, you know, wrote this stuff before we had all the handy digital aids for writing neat copy. Um, so uh, it's, uh, you know, it, it, it's, so that's one of the reasons I quit. And I figured that with writing, I could, you know, I can, I can write a short story and hand it to a friend. Yeah. And they can read it and, and, and have an experience with it. Uh, music, classical music that's notated, that's written out, has to be uh, recorded, mediated by somebody else. Somebody yeah. else has to do that. You can't give the sheet of paper with the notes on it to somebody to experience. It has to be performed first. Yeah. So that was kind of one of the reasons uh, that I stopped writing music and drifted more toward writing words. No, I think that's interesting. And, and what were kind of your first forays into writing? Like, how did that kind of develop? Well, uh, and it had a little bit to do with New Orleans because I left New Orleans when I was 18 um, and uh, and went to Chicago, uh, which was very exotic to me because it was such, so Americana. Yeah. You know, diners and movie theaters and Norman Rockwell type stuff, you know. And, and I grew up, you know, in the quarter and Marion and Bywater in a very bohemian world um, and, uh, and went to public schools. And so I didn't experience the kind of world that, that, that they have at Evanston, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago. Um, and, uh, so that was very interesting. And I slowly began to realize over a period of a few years, including living in Europe, uh, that New Orleans is a pretty weird place. And then I kept coming back to it and trying to figure it out. Um, and, uh, so I started writing, kind of thinking about New Orleans uh, from a from a great distance, and after a few years, uh, trying to sort of figure out some, I don't know, trying to get on paper uh, some kind of a um, being able to emotionally capture what it feels like to be in New Orleans, at least from my perspective. Yeah, I can understand that. It, it's so strange because you see bits and pieces of the city and other places that you visit, even some of the the greatest cities in the world, quote unquote. Mm -hmm, yeah. uh, but it's never quite the same. Um, right. I mean. You know, I, I have well, would acknowledge that a lot of that might be mythical, um, and, and a lot of that might be my own conscious mythologization. Yeah. You know, I, I've I've talked and written elsewhere about how um, New Orleans is uh, is is has has a rich layers of of myth applied all over it. So so much so that it's difficult to peel that back and see the underlying fact. 
But in the end, that is the so-called magic of the city. And a lot of people don't like to hear the word magical New Orleans, you yeah. know, but it, but it, that, that is where that lies. And it's in the rich myth. And I think you, you need to kind of immerse yourself with that and accept that to see New Orleans as a special kind of place. That may mean leaving if you're from here um, and being gone for a while and then coming back so that you can kind of re-mythologize it. Um, you know, so I, I suppose I was able to do that years being gone and then coming back to visit. Uh, and I can sort of kind of see it in a new light. But, um, you know, I... Uh, so in, in in this novel and in others, I, I I do I do try to you know New Orleans is presented as a very fantastic, fabulous kind of uh, place. Yeah, it's not realism, in other words, that that that's in this and, and most of my other writing. Kind of the, the heightened sense of it. Um, you also teach at Loyola. Yes, I do. Um, I'm in the English department over there. All right. Um, I teach uh, you know introductory writing courses, that kind of thing. Um, but the course, uh, the course that uh, I appreciate a lot, that's a pretty popular course, is my New Orleans literature course. Mm. Uh, in that we read, uh, you know, stuff dating from the French language period and English translation, but um, and um, up to uh, sort of post immediate post Katrina moment. Mm. We do it backwards though. We start with uh, the Katrina moment, um, and then we roll back and go backwards uh, until we get to. Um, the earlier writers like Afro-Creole, Afro-Creole authors like Amon Lanus and uh, Victor Sejour, uh, the Lesnel poets, um, and the, you know the very early New Orleans writing back when it's still in French, and everything in between. Alice Dunbar Nelson, John Kennedy Toole. We do Confederacy of Dunces, Tennessee Williams, Lyle Saxon, uh, George Washington Cable, of course. Mm-hmm. We do Kate Chopin, The Awakening. Can't do everything. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of you people know, yeah. writing that that I that I can't get to. Understand. Um, understandable. <laughs> um, yeah. But it's a sort of a survey and we cover a lot of stuff and we trace back, you know, sort of peel back the layers of the the history of the representation of New Orleans, which is what the literature is. Um and uh until we get at the early roots. Yeah, no, I can see that. Um that's interesting. You get a better context for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of teaching that and understanding that that fuller context. Uh, mm-hmm. How would you describe the writing community here now? Um, well, there's a lot of stuff going on here now. Uh, I, I will say that I, I I started studying New Orleans after I started writing about it. I mean, first I started writing about it as a native, as somebody who's just writing about you know my experience growing up, like in this novel, even though with a lot of layers of myth and fantastic uh, surreal events going on that's just how i imagine it yeah um and uh but uh you know and then later on out of as a kind of out of a curiosity to find out how my idea of new orleans developed i started looking into the history of how new orleans has been perceived uh and then you find out that a lot of these notions about uh an exceptional New Orleans uh, that has uh, certain specific features like the valorization of leisure over labor, uh, the celebration of sensuality, the celebration of fantasy, uh, the kind of pagan leanings, uh, that all of these tropes having to do with New Orleans are actually pretty old and actually go back literally hundreds of years. Um, So, and I was one of many people who was kind of... uh, um, expressing 
these tropes and expressing these ways of viewing New Orleans unconsciously. Yeah. Um, and, um, and, and so I, you know, figured out where the, what the archeology span of that is, um, and found out that it's actually, a, a, it's very traditional to view New Orleans in, in these ways. Um, so the writing thing today is, uh, oh, there's lots of stuff. Uh, one thing is there's a lot of people who have moved to New Orleans that aren't from here who are writers before they came. Um, and so New Orleans has always attracted um, these kinds of people in the 1920s, Sherwood Anderson and Faulkner were here. Walt Whitman came to visit in the 1850s. Um, so, you know, Mark Twain was fond of the city. Um, so it's always attracted writers, the beats. It was an important uh, thing on the beats uh, itinerary. Uh, William Burroughs uh, writes about New Orleans in his book Junkie, which mm -hmm. is his memoir of being a junkie in New York, New Orleans, and, and Mexico City. Uh, and a good third of that is here in New Orleans. Kerouac has a chapter in his On the Road, too. Uh, so I think New Orleans continues that way. So I think you continue to have a number of writers who move here from somewhere else because it's a fun place to live and because it's uh, it's been a bohemian magnet for, you know, over a century. Yeah. Um, and then, on the other hand, there's writers who are from here, which are also uh, very interesting uh, and doing great work as well. Yeah, no, I get that. Um, you, outside of fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, you write a column for The Lens? Yes, I'd contribute uh, on a pretty regular basis to The Lens, um, you know, a few columns a year, um, uh, various different subjects. Uh, I uh, I think about half of them, used to be more than half, are about New Orleans and the way New Orleans is represented and uh, the, uh, the ideas of, of New Orleans as an alternative to uh, mainstream American uh, well, cultural norms and how that's a contested idea, mm -hmm. those kind of things. New Orleans exceptionalism, they call it, um, and arguing over that and the role of that kind of rhetoric in, in issues like gentrification. And, yeah. Um, you know, the, the worries about maintaining uh, a traditional culture in New Orleans, but with the recognition that uh, culture needs to be a living thing and can't be reified into some static you know, museum uh, exhibit. Um, and that means uh, that the culture needs to kind of uh, change. And um, I write a lot about how I think it's kind of a beautiful thing that transplants move to New Orleans with the idea of becoming New Orleanians um, and contributing to uh, a, a specifically New Orleanian culture, the fact that there's an argument about whether the culture of New Orleans will suffer or thrive under this or that new wave of migrants, um, I, I think is a, a great thing because I like the idea that people continue to view New Orleans as an alternative um, to a more homogenized mainstream and, and commercialized culture. Yeah, no, the, the fact that we're having this argument is the best thing possible, right? You That's know? right. I, I often say that the uh, that the will to exceptionalism is the reality of New Orleans exceptionalism. Interesting. The fact that people want to think that New Orleans is different is the only thing or 90% of what makes it different. Yeah. You know, and there's arguments over authenticity and what that's supposed to mean. Um, and, um, and the way I view that is that I agree with Nietzsche and what Nietzsche said a long time ago, uh, that authenticity is really a performance and that identity is a performance and that we're all engaged in self-invention more or less consciously. 
Yeah. Um, and so to perform New Orleanianness is there's nothing inauthentic about that because we're all performing some kind of uh, identity. Yeah. Um, so on the other hand, though auth- authenticity may be a fabrication, the will to authenticity is real. And what I think that we see in a lot of people who uh, long for a distinctive New Orleanian authenticity that can be seen separately from a dominant American uh, national culture uh, is a longing to escape from uh, a a particularly commercialized consumer um, view of a a one big strip mall kind of America. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, Starbucks is an issue here. A lot of people will never go to Starbucks, you know, and, other things, national change is an argument. When West Elm showed up on Magazine Street, a lot of people didn't want to see that. Yeah. It should be local. Um, of course, that's turned to all kinds of uh, commercial ends as well. Um, and that uh, illusion of authenticity is marketed to tourists and all that kind of stuff. And that turns the locals up or off who are always trying to one-up the tourists and not be seen <laughs> as a tourist. And and then it's transplants, you know, getting into arguments with who's the more real New Orleanian the one who came five minutes ago or 10 minutes ago. Um, And those things are ultimately very unproductive. Uh, I think it's important to realize that that will to to some kind of authenticity that can exist uh, outside a a mass commercialized, mass homogenized, mass reified uh, American consumer culture is is a great thing. And if they see that in New Orleans, that's fine with me. I understand they see that in other places too. New Orleans isn't the only place that offers up a regional exceptionalist um, ideology to kind of resist the mass um, homogenization of culture. Um, but it is one of those places, and we've got a lot of cred on that because of very distinctive early history. Yeah. Do you think that can remain in place as is? Or It will. I mean, it's going it, to – things change, and, you know, if you look at stuff like the, the, uh, the second line they had, the parade they had after David Bowie died – uh, to commemorate David Bowie. There's kind of a flap over that. Um, people worry that that was an authentic expression of New Orleans second-line culture. I think that problem is easily evaded if we don't call it a second-line, but if we just call it a parade. Yeah. Um, and then it is a distinctively New Orleanian way to recognize what is, in, in the view of the people who put the parade on, a significant global event. Yeah. You know, David Bowie's not from New Orleans. Um, but he's a celebrated global cultural figure. Yeah. Um, and New Orleans is part of global culture. Um, we don't exist independently of the rest of the world or the rest of the nation, but it would be great if we could find uh, specifically New Orleanian ways, a specifically New Orleanian idiom uh, to contribute to a global uh, cultural um, expression. And, and so I think stuff like that shows that New Orleans culture will continue um, and, uh, that, that, that some, uh, some kind of, uh, attempt at, uh, a, a distinctively New Orleanian identity, uh, that's tied to, uh, traditional culture will, will, will continue to exist yeah. over the generations. So I think that's a great thing. I think the problem is that economic anxiety is what causes a lot of uh, bad feeling about all of this. If it weren't for gentrification, if it weren't for hikes in property values, I don't think anybody would be all worried about, oh, these people don't deserve our culture. Yeah. No, you I, know, I it's agree. just because, you know, if, if people can't afford to live where they grew up, 
Um, and that, that, that's a shame. And other people are moving in from somewhere else and they're putting on a parade. <laughs> you know, yeah. a lot of people feel like that their culture is being stolen from them. And, and that's the issue of cultural appropriation. I mean, if there weren't an economic underlying menace, then nobody, I don't think, would be arguing about it. That's such an important point. The yeah. economic factors going. Yeah, into that's that the real thing. issue. Yeah. That's the real issue. Those anxieties coming right there. Right. New Orleans will still be distinctively New Orleans, even if nobody in the future New Orleans is was from here before. Yeah. Uh, to kind of to put it back to you and your writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, yeah, for that's the a lens. lot of what I write about in the lens. Yeah, basically, yeah, that's a good. lot of what my pieces are in the lens. <laughs> except in the past year or so, I've, I've, I've like a lot of people who uh, a lot of writers, I've, I've gotten sucked into the Trump maelstrom. And I'm writing a lot about those kinds of developments. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it relates to local things like the Confederate monuments and stuff like that. It's sort of uh, very relevant. And I, I do appreciate in your writing whether, you know, listeners agree politically or not. I do think you are less of a posture taker than mm-hmm. someone that tries to get like an overall take, mm-hmm. uh, which which I think is appreciative because there's so much hot take editorial or a columnist yeah. out there that really mm-hmm. they say they're one thing and it's very specific because a lot of the times they have a certain word count that they can get to. That's the issue. Yeah. yeah. I think one of the great things about the lens is uh, the way that they've uh, allowed me to take a, m- a lot more space than is possible in a newspaper column. Yeah. Uh, I contributed columns uh, to the Times-Picayune for a few years there, uh, you know, before I started uh, contributing to the lens. Um, and there, that's 650 words, maybe 700 max. Yeah. Uh, lens pieces are, uh, uh, you know, 2,000, maybe a little bit more than 2,000, the, the ones they let me do, yeah. thankfully. <laughs> um, and, you know, when I first started doing them, they, they, they insisted on shorter, but now, you know. Uh, but, um, and so it, it gets a little bit more toward magazine essay length. Yeah. Um, which means you can do, as you say, provide uh, a, 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 more, a more comprehensive overview of an issue rather than just hurrying up and getting to a claim or a thesis about the issue and mm-hmm. hammering that, you know. So I think that's probably wise, the the latitude um, that they allow me for, for length. No, I agree. Um, well, our time is sadly running short. I could talk to you all day about all, right. all these things. Um, to kind of round us out, uh, what are you reading right now and, and what are you working on? Oh, well, you know, what I'm reading right now um, is uh, various uh, – Different things. I'm I, I'm struggling to to be able to find um, things to to read that aren't just the latest uh, political news, and I've, I've written about that too. Um, but I've got Anne Gisselson's The Futilitarians uh, on my uh, nightstand. I'm uh, reading through that and continuing to uh, read other things. I always try to read in addition to uh, contemporary writers, uh, old stuff too. I'm uh, Making my way through uh, Josephus's um, uh, "The Wars of the Jews," which is a story about the fall of uh, of, of of ancient Israel under the Romans, uh, written at that time period. Uh, going through Nietzsche again, rereading that in German and English because I, uh, you know, I, I, I do German as well. Um, what I'm working on is uh, I'm working on a memoir, um, but uh, before I do that, I need to think about my next novel, which is coming out. Uh, in early 2018, it's called Sleepy Time Down South. Um, it's a jazz novel, and it's an American rewrite of Thomas Mann's Death in Venice. Ah. Uh, and Thomas Mann's Death in Venice, uh, the famous writer Gustav Aschenbach goes to Venice and experiences uh, untold ecstasies, but then has a terrible decline and dies 
It is called Death in Venice. Obviously, you're not spoiling anything. I don't want to give away my story, but it's called Sleepy Time Down South. Yeah. And there's, it involves race a lot. I mean, I've got a white jazz musician from Chicago who comes to New Orleans and immerses himself in the, um, in the, in the just beginning to boom new brass band sounds of the 1980s. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, he has a great time and experiences uh, heavy musical as well as other kinds of sensual uh, experiences. But then, of course, uh, it's sleepy time for him uh, before the end of the novel. And uh, that's coming out on Livingston Press. It'll be out in early 2018. Well, fantastic. We're looking forward to, to going to that. Thank you. Then. All right. Well, um, thank you so much again for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I've enjoyed it. That was author C.W. Cannon, contributor to local publication The Lens, as well as an educator and novelist, with his most recent book being French Quarter Beautification Project. And that's our show. You've been listening to the Writers' Forum on WRBH 88.3 FM. Catch us every Thursday at 3 p.m. as well as on Sundays at 8.30 a.m. You can find this interview as well as all of WRBH's other interview programs on our SoundCloud page, which is soundcloud.com slash WRBH Reading Radio. I'm David Benedetto. Until next time.